0: John 13, 21 through 30. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to his disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, He asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread, when I have dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas, hold on, since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Wonderful. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, Come. Breathe on us a fresh awareness of your presence. Lord, we know you're everywhere, and yet one of the oldest prayers in the book for children of God is, come, Lord. Holy Spirit, come. May we see Jesus rightly today. Not Jesus as we wish he was, because Jesus as he is is better than we can wish. And show us who we are. Show us that through trusting in You, the truest thing about us is that we're loved by You. Show us where we're not believing that today. And help us to move toward belief. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, part three of four of our family, as family we go series. This is, this is the series we're in. And so I love the household. It's like the family household of God through water and land and desert. We are on the move and that's who we are. That's kind of what the graphic designer came up with. I actually really love that graphic. As family we go. Part one, we looked at fa- that family part. What does it mean that we're family? You we don't want to throw that word around lightly as we often do. And then part two, uh, what does it mean that we go? What does it mean that we carry this family mission? What is the mission? And we learn that it's to make disciples. And so today, what is a disciple? Part three, what does it mean to be a disciple? What does that look like? Someone who is following Jesus as a disciple and they're doing it right, what's the picture in our mind? And we're going to John's gospel because John gives us a picture. The ultimate picture of discipleship he paints, it's right smack in the middle of John's gospel. And John gives us this picture of himself leaning back into Jesus' body. Okay, this is something that is a recurring theme for me. I gave a sermon similar to this uh, about two years ago in the fall. And I plan to always circle back to this because I, if I can be honest, I need this today more than two years ago. Um, there's a gap between my belief that this is true, that I'm supposed to be this beloved disciple who leans back on Jesus. There's a gap between my belief in this and, my, and, my, and the reality of it. Like, I, I, a lot of pastors say, I'm preaching to myself today, and that's nice to say, but honestly, if I could, uh, I am very much, more than ever, more than usual, preaching to, directly to my own soul today. And so... Um, I, I, hopefully it'll be helpful to you. I think it will be because God's word is, is powerful. So, as we walk through the text, it becomes clear. This is what John wants us to look like. This is the posture he wants us to take. It's, to be a disciple of Jesus means to live a life of leaning back into Jesus' own body. Okay? And so this is what we're going to look at. Um, but first, let's be honest about our moment, right? Uh, (laughs) Our culture is less about leaning back and more about leaning in. Like, like lean into your career, lean into that networking and that momentum. Everyone's got to start leaning in. Ten years ago, or for the last ten years, more and more books are talking about what it means to lean in the, in the workplace or lean into your education. Produce more, control out, get to inbox, email inbox zero. That's the dream. That's A, leaned in per, a disciple of the leaning in culture is a disciple with inbox zero. You know, you've, you have your network is made. And, and Sheryl Sandberg, former, you know, Facebook COO, she's now on the board of directors for Meta or whatever. She wrote a book famously called Lean In. And the book was about how, all about how women have to take up space and be louder and bigger and lean in. Otherwise the world's not gonna change and, and the, the world's not gonna be created for the better. And listen, I'm all about gender equality, 100%. All about women and men leading as equals in the workplace, in the home, and I'm all about that in the church. But listen, the world won't change unless you ladies get big, otherwise the world's going to be against you. That's like a lot of pressure. (laughs) That just feels like a ton of pressure. I'm not even a lady, and I feel exhausted at that. Um, I agree with it, though. I just think that's a lot of pressure. And that's the culture we have. Lean in. Be big. Take up space. It's like, gosh, I should really be more networked by now. Like, if, I should have more, more people in my contacts who, who get me f- further in where I want to go. I really need my five-year plan filled in. So we lean into relationships. Or as a pastor, I lean into church growth. And we think about, well, should we really go from three gatherings to two? Or should we go from three gatherings to four? You know, we try to lean in. And, and that's the temptation. Otherwise, we'll miss momentum in our life. Um, or miss Significance. And that's where I started to get personal. That's my fear. If I miss significance, that means I miss being loved. Because if people tell me I'm significant, that means I'm I'm the one people love. Um, and so, so this is the grind. I lean in, and this even goes for kids today. A recent survey is like a recent survey says that that uh, by Pew Research, sixty four percent of Americans say that parents aren't putting enough pressure on their kids to do better in school. So now we're all leaning in, right? <laughs> like men and women and kids all feeling crushed, kind of. And, and I, I love, don't get me wrong, I think we should do hard things. Obviously, we should wake up in the morning on time and do hard things. But with our entire cultural river, next slide, you have that next, yeah. With our entire cultural river pulling us to live life leaning in, the gospel of John invites us uh, gives us a vivid picture for what discipleship to Jesus looks like against the grain of our frantic culture, and that is to lean back. And this is what we see in John 13. Laura read it. It's the night Jesus was betrayed, the night before he would be killed. Die for your sins. Jesus, is, he's enjoying the last supper meal. We're going to have the meal that reminds our bodies of that meal today, the communion meal and Jesus removes his outer garment and he kneels down to wash the disciples' feet, which was an act reserved for slaves. And after that foot washing moment, the disciples are all lingering around the table with Jesus. What was that table atmosphere like? I really like entering the Bible stories with my senses as an act of devotion once in a while. So what do you think it smelled like in that upper room? There's there's wine aerating into the air. There's there's like a roast animal on the on the table, and there and there's maybe olive oil lamps burning, diffusing into the air. It smells nice. There's bodies on top of bodies because they they were laying down, kind of on each other, which is an interesting smell. You know. There's all these smells happening, and there's all these sights and this atmosphere. Picture the atmosphere. So, don't imagine this necessarily. You know, that's always a funny picture. First of all, they weren't all white guys. Secondly, secondly, 20, a table for 26, please, and then they sit only on one half, which is weird. Um, so, so, so don't picture that, like, uh, even though it's great perspective, well done, Da Vinci, it's amazing, uh, but next, next slide, it was more like a U-shaped table and cushions, and people are literally laying on, on, on parts of each other, you know, uh, very intimate, very physical, and, and you're probably laying, leaning on your left elbow and eating and serving with your right hand. And then next, next slide. This is artist's guess on where they were sitting because of the way the dialogue plays out. Peter shouts across, hey, John, ask Jesus a question. John's right there. Judas is also there because they dip together. Maybe. And then, of course, because we always have to have the CG remake these days. There's the CG remake. Um. But, but the point is it's, it's, a, it's intimate, very intimate. I got to eat a meal like this in the Middle East in Saudi Arabia uh, in a U-shaped table on the ground with cushions. And you don't have the benefit of hiding, like, your legs and your phone under the table. It's all just there. Your whole self is seen and experienced by others, and it's very intimate. So, so as Jesus and his 12 closest friends are sitting there reclining, Jesus starts to explain how one of his friends in the room will stab him in the back. And the room suddenly gets very tense. So picture your awkward family Thanksgiving. This is way worse, right? Suddenly very tense. Active betrayal in the room. And Jesus calls it out. Judas is plotting to betray Jesus. Jesus knows it. And so Jesus, he's unable to contain his emotion. Look at verse, the first verse of the passage, John 13, 21, right here. Um, do you have slide 13 here? Yeah. Jesus was troubled in spirit, it says, or in anguish. That, that word troubled in the Greek is literally the Greek word terrazzo. I say it because you know that word if you know design. It's that tile that looks like all the rocks are chipped up and broken up. Jesus' spirit was crushed. He was having, this is literally a breakdown of emotion. His soul was tile, and it's chipped up, confused, shaken to his core. And, and, and the next verse says that the disciples were confused because of Jesus' emotional breakdown. It says they were, quote, at a loss. And, and so what, do you, what is this we're seeing here? This is not Jesus, the glazed-over sage. Consider the lilies. One of you shall betray me with like a glazed-over stoic. No, this is Jesus, your male figure, the the man that was the male figure for these men, and and he's he's usually a protector, provider, and he's in shambles on the ground. What does that make you feel? Maybe you've witnessed a father just lose it. This is the disciples at this moment. Their world is going into slow motion right now. So much so they don't even recognize what's happening. They don't even see that Jesus is telling them who will betray them. He says, the next person I dip the bread with and then give it to him will be my betrayer. And he dips it and he gives it to Judas. And then Judas leaves and goes. And and they're like, we still can't process this. We read that story and go, how could they not know? Jesus told them. But they, it was just, they're in shock. And when Judas finally leaves the room, John makes this comment in this horrible moment. It says, as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. Why does John John add, and it was night? Why that detail, and it was night? Because it was night, first of all. Uh, Secondly, because John loves playing with, Opposites. I think this is actually a powerful moment in John's writing style. He does this in the beginning. Look at the beginning of the, of, the, of the book of John in verse 4 of chapter 1. It says, In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. See that? John plays with opposites a lot. Light, dark, day, night. He loves doing that. And so here, when Jesus, who's the light of the world, gets betrayed, John's like, oh, this is night. We should feel this. Why? Because Judas is turning away from the light of the world and stepping into the deepest darkness, coldest place any human being can ever go. By the way, I loved how there, were, there was a little boy running circles around us as we were, as we were worshiping this morning. Did you notice this? And then, and then Drew like went into I am a child of God, which he didn't sing at any of the other gatherings. I'm like, did you do that? Because there was a literal child like running around. That's awesome. I loved every minute of that. And so that, that child was running in the light and I was being drawn into the light because I'm like, this, I am a beloved child of God. And this is a child literally running for del- with delight. And, and Judas here is doing the opposite. And John wants us to feel the oppositeness Of this, he's in the coldest, loneliest place a human being can ever go. Judas is rejecting Jesus' love. Absolute tragedy. Here's how the Judas story unfolds in the Gospel of John. John 6 starts with Judas, he's like, I don't think, eat your flesh, drink your blood, that's a little intense. And then John 12, progresses into opposing jesus no we should give the money to the poor and then john 13 and 18 he's outright rejecting jesus and betraying him selling him for silver and from that point on no light comes into judas anymore he is darkness and in darkness you make some of the worst decisions a human can make and if you're not a follower of jesus here and that feels intense that's the right feeling, but I still want to welcome you. Like, exploring Jesus here, that, where else are you going to go? Explore Jesus in Jesus' family? Yes, please. So, But the, the hardest, darkest parts of the gospel are just as important because that's how bright his light is. Jesus' light is so bright, and in him there's no darkness at all, and Judas is preferring darkness, which means he's preferring not to be in him. We should reckon with that too. And this is a place to reckon with that. If you're wrestling with, I've never been baptized, I don't know if I follow Jesus, reckon with that. Judas, John points us to Judas here and says, this is a tragedy, rejecting the light of God. But during this dark scene, we get another pair of opposites, another contrast, and it's the unnamed disciple. So there's the betrayer, Judas, and then there's the unnamed disciple. We don't have his name. Actually, how does he identify himself? He says, I am the disciple who Jesus loved. We know from tradition that this is John, the actual author of John's gospel. But he doesn't say, I'm John. He actually says, more important than even my own name to identify myself Is that Jesus loves me. I'm the disciple Jesus loved. Forget my name for a second. I want you to know mostly about me that Jesus loves me. That's how I identify. so, So this is stark, this contrast, right? Judas plotting Jesus' betrayal and a disciple literally leaning back into Jesus' chest identifying as beloved, who's close to Christ in warm intimacy. In fact, the text almost makes it look like the disciple gets closest to Jesus the moment Jesus confesses his terrazzo, his broken soul. He's like, Oh, Jesus, tell me more. I want to know what's inside. I want to know what you're thinking. I want to know what's in your heart and in your thoughts. And so I love what Ronald Rollheiser says about this unnamed disciple. He says, the name is left blank so that every one of us can put our names there. Each of us is to be the beloved disciple, the one identified by leaning back into Jesus in special intimacy. So you literally are meant to read John's gospel. And when you get to, and then the beloved disciple said, you're supposed to insert your name here and say, this is what a disciple is supposed to look like. This is what a disciple is supposed to say. This is how a disciple of Jesus is supposed to posture themselves in relation to Jesus. It's brilliant what he's doing here. And the contrast, you guys, please bear in mind the contrast. Judas rejecting Jesus' love, the beloved disciple absorbing Jesus' love. One disciple turning his back on Jesus and another disciple literally leaning his back into Jesus, placing his body up next to Jesus' body. This is brilliant here. If you haven't noticed, John's kind of a black-and-white thinker. Black-and-white thinking is okay sometimes, (laughs) and it's really good in this case. Look at what John does here. Black-and-white, John is saying there's really two kinds of disciples. One who is moving away from Jesus' love in more and more rejection, and one who's drawing nearer to Jesus' love in more and more intimacy. And John's asking you, locate yourself. Which disciple are you right now? not 10 years ago, not in junior high when you walk forward at the altar call at summer camp. Where are you now? Moving away from Jesus in rejection of intimacy or absorbing Jesus' presence in more and more intimacy? That's what John's interested in. He's like, that's what you need to be interested in. Judas was with Jesus for three years. Judas could say, I'm one of the 12, I'm in. So it's not about what you did three years ago. It's about where are you now. That's what John's after here. Now let's really chew on this, this image of the beloved disciple. Again, U-shaped table, they're leaning on each other, reclining, no chairs. The beloved disciple leaning back on Jesus' chest. I love asking this question because it gets you into the picture. When you lean your head on someone's Breastbone, right, right there, on their chest. When you lean someone your head there, what do you hear? What do you hear and feel? Uh, yeah, the heartbeat. You hear a heartbeat, right? You hear ju- your ear is just above that person's heart, so you can hear the heartbeat. I like to say you can hear their cortisol levels being regulated. What's making them anxious? What's giving them a rise? In the intervals between heartbeats and, of course, a deep breath, you can hear a very clear deep breath when your ear is on the chest. Think about that. This disciple who Jesus loved, that's his identity. He's the one with his ear on the chest hearing intervals between heartbeats, hearing the breath of God. This is John's ultimate image for discipleship. This is not a coincidental moment in John's gospel. This is a central moment in John's gospel. All these opposites are pointing to this meaning in John 13. So according to John, a true disciple is someone who's leaning back on Jesus' chest, hearing Jesus' heartbeat, and from that place, looking out into the world, then you see clearly, then you're regulated. Then you can see clearly Okay, so Sandy and I have five kids, if you didn't know, four boys and a girl, and our one girl is Harper, I don't know if she's in the room, there's Harper Joy, that's the Enos Harper, the Wickham Harper, I think is probably running around somewhere, but uh, she is 10, most of her life she's been like the really physical cuddler, like she loves to be in on the physical, whatever's happening, she's in. dad will you tickle me, it's like her main thing she says to me nowadays, dad tickle me! And and growing up, uh, she would be the first one in on on, a, on the kiss. So like if me and Sandy were to kiss each other in the kitchen, start kissing, uh, most kids are like, "ew," and they run away. But she was like, "Let me in there." Like, she will come in, wedge in between our bodies, and get as much of her body in between our two bodies as she humanly can, and then peek out from a little place, giggling, just. Wanting to be as close as she can to that intimacy. And you guys, that right there is what John is trying to show you. That's the image of perfect discipleship to Jesus. That we'd remain in the place, leaning back. There's Father, Son, and Spirit intimate with each other from all eternity past. And we're like, I want in there. And he invites you in. He adopts you in by his blood and by his sacrifice and by his welcome and by the Spirit. Come in. And we say, I want in. And, and he welcomes us into intimacy with him. And we can hear his heartbeat from there. And we look out from there and we see the world clearly. We see ourselves as loved in the right, in the best way. That's why I prayed at the beginning of this, Lord, help us to see Jesus as he is, not as we wish. Because Jesus as he is will always be better than our greatest wish. I want to get in there. A disciple is one who sees the world with the sound of Jesus' heart in their ear. Okay, just personally speaking, I am so learning this. Uh, And I don't mean that in like I've learned this. I mean like I need to hear this sermon preached to my soul over and over. Um, Years of leaning in to ministry stuff. And honestly, family of origin for me was if you feed the church, if you show up to feed church, if you lead worship, if you write songs, the Wickham House, we, we write songs, we make people have an experience with God, and then when they come back with affirmation they say, you're a worship leader, you're anointed, suddenly I'm fed and a circle of dependence is created in an unhealthy way, and suddenly what's my ear actually touching? It's the chest of the church, it's not the chest of Jesus, and now my... Anxiety levels are regulated by the church's voices, which are so diverse and awesome, but like not, the, not Christ's. And, and my, my belovedness, I'm the disciple who the church loves at that point. That's my identity. I'm the disciple who the church loves. And, and that's, my, that's, that's how I've lived so much of my ministry life, identified that way. The beloved by the church disciple. Uh, and and you can imagine what circumstances do to my anxiety levels <laughs> at that point. Because what is love? I I just started therapy again after the last uh, after a couple a couple years of not being in. Two weeks ago, I'm, I'm in therapy. Woohoo! And uh, it is it is amazing and it is exhausting equally. And uh, and I I'm I'm sitting there and my guys is talking to me about. Love and trust, the two things we need and, and desire, and it's good, and we'll find them wherever we can. You can't not look for them. And, uh, and I'm my greatest lie that I believe is that I'm not enough, I'm not significant, until I get another hit of love from X. And, uh, and in, that, in many cases, that X is the church or the worship industry or you name it. Or or social media, which is the worst place to find significance. Um, I shouldn't have said that. was an extreme statement. You know what I mean. Um, It is not the ultimate place to find significance. And so for me, uh, networking, momentum, all of that is a a, a, a siren's call. Uh, and, And so this is a matter of life and death, spiritual life and death. I have to see the world from the place this disciple does. I have to put my ear on Jesus' chest. I have to let Jesus' heartbeat regulate mine, and I have to look out at the rest of the world from that place. Uh, Otherwise, I just don't see clearly. I don't see myself. Uh, And so, needless to say, you can lose sight of Jesus even as a pastor. Uh, If that's surprising to you, it it shouldn't be with, you know, today, you know, Judas was very close Jesus for three years, right? Three years. He could name. He's not one of them. I'm in. But he failed. His ear was not pressed up against Jesus. Case in point, how many times have you heard stories of high-level Christian leaders who cave into their own ego and abuse people for more influence or money or sex, all while doing and saying really awesome godly things And, and doing amazing sermons and writing books and preaching? It's like, and it confuses people. It's like, how could God use so powerfully that voice? And yet that was going on behind the scenes, the duplicity. And then, and then I have to, at that moment, go, I flirted with other sources of ultimate significance so many times, way too many times. I have my eyes and ears pressed up against the church and the church's needs. And then the city what San Diego needs, I'll read books about San Diego and so I can talk about San Diego culture like I know what I'm talking about. And, and, and the music industry and what I think it needs, oh, if I write that song, then it'll generate that response and it'll, whatever. But when, so when I walk, I'll speak for myself, when I walk in intimacy with Jesus, I've, I, I come to realize, and I'm not there yet, but I will come to realize that what a city actually needs are people who are close enough to Jesus to hear his heart so that they can lead others there when not even the church is near Jesus. So we say, as family we go, that's, that's, how we, that's where we go from. It's the only place to go from, is this, this place near Jesus. That's the picture San Diego needs. And for me, this is, for all of us, pressed up against Jesus' chest, leaning back, and from that place on Jesus' heart, I can say to my wife from that place, hey, Sandy, I've experienced Christ. I've experienced peace. I, I, have a, I have a gut sense, maybe a hunch, that 2024 will be a year of anxiety for a lot of people um, just because of what kind of comes around election year and the kinds of conversations that flow out of that. So for me, I, this is leaning back on Jesus' chest And I say to my wife, I say to my kids, I say to my church, I say to my community and my friends and my city, hey, everyone, come here. This is where you'll gain perspective on life. This is where there's comfort. This is where there's peace. This is where there's actual love. Everyone wants it. See, the disciple's location is intended to tell us something about him. He's reclining near Jesus' chest, and from there, he's able to see clearly everything. Now, this is an even bigger deal than we can imagine. I really want us to catch this last part, okay? According to John's intro, chapter 1, the disciples' location in Jesus with intimacy is exactly the same as Jesus' location and intimacy with the Father. Same word, same word. Look at John 1, verse 18. This is amazing. John says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God. And is in closest relationship with the Father, he's made him known. So, that underlined part, in closest relationship with the Father, that is the exact language in the Greek that John uses of himself as he's leaning back on Jesus. Here's, here's what I mean look at in the King James, because King James actually uh, mirrors the Greek in those two verses so that you can see the same word being used. By the way, Old King James. Can I get a shout-out for that? Oh, old King James? Anybody have one of those bad boys right now? Yes! Look, oh, the youth that raises hand for youth. He has also an Old King James Bible somehow. That's awesome. Uh, so, John, so here it is. Look at this. You'll see the connection because of this weird, very weird word in the text. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father... He's made him known, okay? And then look at the same word for John's position with Jesus. Now, there was leaning on Jesus's bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Okay, weird word, right? We don't use that word bosom really normally. Uh, So don't think body parts here. Think the folds of a garment. That Greek word is, is the word for the fold of a garment. So picture a kid who doesn't have enough hands to carry Legos and he wants to bring them to his friend and so he puts his Legos in his bosom. He puts them in the fold of his shirt, right? I would do, anybody else? Carry Legos in your shirt. Okay, carry Legos in your shirt. It's the only way to fly. And, and when you're a kid, you, you wrap up those things in your shirt and this is, this is the word. The fold of the garment, meaning... The beloved disciple is in the fold of Jesus' garment, covered and intimate with Jesus, exactly where Jesus is in relation to the Father. Same word. The implications of this are beautiful and freeing. You know what they are? Jesus being that close to the Father is what made the Father known to the world. It wasn't Jesus... Just preaching a perfect sermon. It was Jesus being intimate with the Father that made the Father known. You guys, this is this is ins- so. Look at this. The next slide. Leaning back in intimacy with Jesus is precisely what enables you to make Him known to the world. Your intimacy with Jesus is what reveals God. You know what this means? It means. You can have all the right words. You can watch YouTube debates of Christians versus atheists and like learn all the right apologetics arguments and that's good info to have. But you can have all the right words and that's all great, but the most powerful evangelistic aspect of your life, the most powerful evangelism that will ever flow from you is gonna be your intimacy with Jesus. Period. Like as someone who's just intimate with Jesus, who's like, I've, I've tasted, I've seen. I know his voice. I love him. And I love you like he loves me. And you don't know how to articulate the historical argument for the resurrection of Christ as, as elucidated by Gary Habermas or whatever. Like, and you, you will have far more impact than someone who has all the arguments with no intimacy. This is freeing intimacy with Jesus through the Holy Spirit will be a far more powerful evangelistic light through you than any, anything you can articulate. Um, okay, maybe you're like, that's all beautiful, lean back on Jesus, Evan, that's really nice. I'm not a touchy-feely person, I need practicals. I don't, like, I don't even know where Jesus is to lean back on him right now, so tell me what this means practically. If that's you, if that's you, I you I gotcha right now. So here it is. Uh, what does it look like practically? for a church to lean back on Jesus. What does it require? Three things for now, and then we'll come to the bread and cup and baptism. What does it require, leaning back? Well, number one, you gotta show up. You have to show up. What does that mean? Ronald Rolheiser talks about it like this. It's prayer. There's no bad way to pray, and there's no one starting point for prayer. All the great spiritual masters offer just one non-negotiable rule. You have to show up for prayer, and you have to show up regularly. That is leaning back. Like one baseline, you show up to pray. So we're in our sixth year, Park Hill Church. It's our sixth year. Uh, our anniversary is Christmas Eve, which is awesome. Every year I learn something again and again. And it's, it's only confirmed. It's that Christians have this love-hate relationship with prayer. Like we say prayer is all important because it connects us with God and it's our, it's our faith breathing uh, while simultaneously not praying. We just kind of forget to do it. It's like breathing, but we forget to breathe. Uh, and so here's the reality, if Christians, <laughs> this is, if Christians don't take everything else off the table to pray, Christians won't pray. You know, like if we don't <laughs> take it all off, we won't do it. Why? because everything about prayer is everything the enemy and our flesh kicks against. But why? Because prayer literally contains everything we need to lean back into Jesus' own body and take on his heartbeat. It has all, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 2, we have the mind of Christ through the spirit. And we open the eyes of our heart to that reality through prayer. And, and so church families show up to pray Very practically, tonight, seek first Sunday. First Sunday of the night, we pray and sing together as a church. Show up, if you can. Uh, Set up prayer meetings with each other through the week. Pray in community. Come forward for prayer after the teaching. Uh, There's no bad way to pray. You can pray, like, sitting down, standing up, on your knees, out loud, on your head, all alone in community. You just name it. You can pray in in silence, with music, on a walk, at 2 a.m. on your bed, Only one non-negotiable rule, you have to show up and show up regularly to pray. To put it bluntly, if you're not showing up regularly to pray, you're not leaning back on Jesus. It's kind of as simple as that. And uh, so leaning back also requires, at minimum, we have to put away distraction. And by distraction, I don't mean interruptions. I don't mean... The people that come to you and interrupt you, those are actually gold moments for encountering Jesus. Most, many of Jesus' ministry moments were from people just interrupting him. So, so, so don't demonize interruptions. Be present to what God might be doing in them. So I'm talking about distractions from God's voice. Uh, the noise we fill our lives with, right? Again, this is very practical. Imagine. The disciple whom Jesus loved, he's sitting in intimacy, he's leaning back on Jesus, he's there on Jesus' chest, and everybody's sitting there, vroom, vroom, suddenly there's like a phone, you know, it's like, and I always picture this in my mind, and no one's owning it, you know, everyone's like, whose phone is that, no one wants to own it, everyone's robe is just kind of down, and then, and then it's like, vroom, vroom, and then Jesus is like, John, you're going to get that now, my sermon is distracted, I'm distracted now, so... And, and so, one thing I've had to practice, and this is just my practice of this, I think it applies to all of us to, to not be distracted from God's voice, but how you achieve that is going to be unique to you. Uh, for me, I have to, I've had to turn my smartphone into a dumb phone, very just cut and dry. I just don't have a browser or email or any social media apps or any other apps that you can just click to infinity on my phone, just because it's always on my body. I can do that on my computer when I'm sitting down, but I just don't have it on my phone. And that's for me because I'm so like, compulsive and I'm just like, you know, I, I'm waiting on that adult onset ADHD diagnosis, you know, because I think it's there. So uh, I just have to limit all, all my stuff. So, maybe for you, it's as simple as making a relational covenant with the Holy Spirit and saying something like, okay, God, for the first hour of my day, I'm just not going to look at a screen ever for the first 60 minutes, uh, in case of, unless emergency or something. And, and, and I'm not even committing to read my Bible for an hour, I'm just not going to look at a screen for an hour, just so I regulate myself according to God and His world, rather than what some algorithm is telling me to regulate myself by. Uh, you know, that's just maybe one thing. Last practical idea just to get your juices flowing uh, is uh, one of our pastors. He showed me this amazing little, little YouTube video of this Catholic father encouraging Christians to do this very simple challenge. 21 days, try this. I could only get to like seven days because I forget. It's actually, it's actually hard and beautiful at the same time. And he said, try this. Every morning when you wake up, get your feet out of your bed and put your feet on the ground. And as your feet hit the ground every day, just take a deep breath and say, good morning, Jesus. That's it. It takes five seconds and then maybe a 15-second breather after that. Just, good morning, Jesus. And what what the Father said in the video is, virtually everyone who's done it has come back to him and said their, their experience of their days has totally changed. I'm like, wow, what? no wonder it's so hard to do. We have like flesh and enemy working against me. I'm just so easily distracted, but that would hone, that would hone me in. Um, so because here's the reality, being a disciple of Jesus in 2023, uh, we have technology that's made our lives efficient, and it's also conspired against depth. Both seeing my own depths, taking time to see what's actually making me feel the way I am, and, and learning the words for that with people, but also depth in just conversation. We're so attentive to so many trivial things, notifications, so we aren't attentive to what we say matters most to us, which are the people in our lives. So leaning back into Jesus requires that we show up to God through prayer. We put away distractions. And finally, the last one is you need to release control of your relationship with God back to God. Here's what that means. In a church like ours, urban San Diego, there's probably a lot of you that know how to manage stuff. And, and get, you, get, you set a goal, maybe you're in sales or you're in management of some kind. You set a goal, and you can set up the parameters to get everyone there. And you manage stuff. And that's really good. I've benefited. I'm not necessarily wired that. I've had to learn it. I've benefited from that. But maybe you're here. You know how to manage business or numbers or money or codes. You know how to manage people. And that's amazing and a huge gift. And it looks like Jesus because God is a God of who brings chaos into order. Amazing. And, and, but often, here's the problem. We're tempted to treat God that way. We're tempted to manage God. We want to manage our spiritual growth goals. Like set benchmarks for the fruit of the spirit in our lives. Like control the outcomes. Like by this time next year, I should, I should have this much more spiritual fruit. I should be mentoring these many people. And I should have a new mentor here. And, uh, and, and this sin that I keep falling into, in 12 months, it better be gone or else I'll be depressed. And all of these things, we try to, does anyone resonate with that? You try to use God to produce your own transformation or try to manipulate God to bring the changes you think you need. When what we really need to do is release control of our relationship with God back to God. It's like, God, even my spiritual growth belongs to you. I know I belong to you, but I really want to grow this year. Well, even the, the, whatever evidence of that growth comes out of me, is that's also yours. Even the results are yours. It's not mine to manipulate. So God, I, I will show up for prayer. I'll put away distractions. I'll plant your word in my heart. I'll give generously to the church. I'll do all the stuff because I'm, I'm going to show up. But God, you're the one who grows me. The results are yours to control. It's like, I, 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 I thought, like right now, you guys, this, this teaching, one of the, the, the first time I, I gave a version of this teaching, I was loving it. <laughs> I was like, this is so profound and I'm seeing this happen in my life and it's a struggle, but it's beautiful. And right now I'm like, I was closer to my goal back then. <laughs> Why have I regressed in my identity issues and my my uh, my gut sense that I have to keep rooting my significance in how I perform for people? Why am I less like this two years later? <laughs> and so right now I have a choice to go, oh, that belongs to God, too. God, my whole life is yours, and, that, and you want my life the way it is right now. God wants my life that way. He, like, is super into me. I'm the disciple he loves right now, and two years ago was two years ago. And so this, t- so this is a releasing of control that I'm like... I, even, I don't even know how much I need to release control. I avoid it so much. I'm avoiding this thing. I'm not, I'm not usually a control freak. I'm an avoider. I just kind of run from it. But that's another way of controlling outcomes, just pretending they're not there. And, and, so, and so God is in that too, and He's like, hey, when you run from the problem, lean back into my chest so we can see it clearly. Can you just promise that? And, and here's what this means for me. It takes silence. It takes silence. Uh, the guy I'm meeting with for therapy, my, my guy, he's like, he's like, I try saying this thing, Evan, and maybe it'll help you. And I think, I think this is what, this is the practice. It's, he's like, Evan, what if you prayed, Holy Spirit, I have nothing to lose and I have nothing to prove. Thank you, Jesus. I have nothing to lose. I have nothing to prove. And I'm like, oh, what if I actually believe that? I have to believe that first. Eternally, in God's economy, I have nothing to lose. And in God's economy, I have nothing to prove. But my family of origin, you have to prove a lot. You have to be a Wickham. And all that that entails for our family and how I interpret that through my insecurities. What if, and I'll combine this with what another mentor said to me, two things, I have nothing to lose, I have nothing to prove, and then the second half. My life is Christ, nothing else matters. Holy Spirit, I have nothing to lose, I have nothing to prove. My life is Christ, nothing else matters. Thank you, Jesus. What if those four lines are all I said between breathing for ten minutes in the presence of Jesus every day for the rest of my life? Are you kidding me in thinking my life wouldn't change? Because I don't believe those things. Do I really believe I'm the disciple who Jesus loved? John's like, you're already an adopted child of God. Insert your name here. I'm like, yeah, but I have to go perform for the church. So it takes silence and solitude. If Jesus had to do it, how much more do we? Ruth Haley Barton talks about it like this, and you guys, this quote, I hate it, and I love it. And I can't handle it. Without the regular experience of being received and loved by God in silence and solitude, we are vulnerable to a kind of leadership that's driven by profound emptiness that we're seeking to fill through performance and achievement. I don't know how she knows me, but that's, I don't know how she got my number, but. So maybe this is why Judas wanted Jesus gone. He had the purse. He wanted to be the philanthropist giving to the poor. Jesus is like, no, let this woman worship with it. He's like, oh, i got to get rid of this guy who says I have to die to live. What is that? But the enduring picture of discipleship is leaning back on Jesus, showing up in regular prayer, limiting distraction, and then releasing control of whatever happens to me to Jesus today, today. Can you imagine if we believe that? First of all, you believe nothing to lose, nothing to prove your life is Christ, nothing else matters. If we believe, I think if we believe that, our chur- the city would see a, ch- a church that's a beacon of love and security in a time of tremendous uncertainty. Again, I have a hunch 2024 will be a time people are looking for security. And so... I think of a community strong enough to keep hearts soft when other hearts are hard. You meet you meet with your community group and there's no gossip about people outside the room. There's just gentle praise of people outside the room because you don't have nothing to lose and nothing to prove in the room because you're the beloved disciple by Jesus. So... Uh, I think God's calling us to live from that place, we're going to come to the table to lean back into Jesus' broken body for us right now. If you've never been baptized, lean, literally when we baptize you, I thought of this this morning when I saw the first baptism, the, the, the woman who's baptized physically leaned back into the water. And, and if you have yet to be baptized, I invite you to lean back into the arms of another brother or sister who's baptizing you, which is indicative of what you're doing. For the rest of your life, identifying as a brother or sister of Jesus in this church. So be baptized. Lean into Jesus. Come back into Jesus. And and so here's what we're going to do. If anything that was said today resonated with, like, the need of the hour for you, like, I want to be known as a follower of Jesus, and I want to know myself as loved by Jesus, and I want help getting rid of the lies that I've been believing. If that's you, I'd love to invite you to come forward for prayer. Feel free to stand right now, everybody stand, and then we're gonna come forward for prayer. Anyone who wants prayer, to experience God's love in your life, to experience the Holy Spirit in your life, to lean back into the chest of Jesus through prayer. This is one way to do it, show up for prayer. And during this prayer time for the next, um, yeah, for the next like five minutes, just come forward for prayer, and if you want to be baptized right now, meet me at the steps of the pool. And I'd love to welcome you to the water. Uh, and then after these five minutes, we'll do communion. So right now, let's just pray and sing.